because there are three candles this morning. So do you remember the first candle? Ruthie, you want to light the, the first one? I think that was the first one because that looks like it's burnt down more than the rest. Do you remember what that candle represented? No. It's for love. The first candle was for love. And we looked at the story of Mary and the song that Mary sang. Okay. That's the first candle. You want to pass that on? And you light the second candle. Do you remember what that one was for? Hope. Very good. Excellent. Okay. And the third candle this week stands for joy. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Better blow that out before it lights somebody on fire. Okay. And we'll put that down. And you can sit down. So later on. Uh, St. Isidore's congregation is coming into the church and they've got their own Advent wreath, which is a little bit different to ours. They've got, I think, red candles all around, except that one of them is pink. And this Sunday is the pink candle. Don't know why it's pink, but it represents joy. I guess pink is all about joy, is it? Okay. So we're thinking about joy. It's called Gaudé, which means rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always, as Paul says. And that is the beginning of the litany in the Catholic Church this Sunday. Rejoice in the Lord always. And we remember the joy that God gives us by sending Christ into the world. So we have our own litany. Rejoice in the Lord always. People of God, be glad. Rejoice, for your God delights in you, giving you joy for sadness and turning the dark to light. Be strong in hope, therefore, for God, your God, comes to save you. Let us pray. Lord, increase our joy. As we anticipate your coming into the world in this Advent season. And we pray together the prayer that Jesus taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. And Joy is going to come and bring us our reading, the angel's song, and the angel's annunciation. The reading this morning is taken from Luke chapter 2, verses 8 to 15. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. 
Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. Amen. This is the word of God. Thank you, Joy. So this last week, well, this, wait, this is the third song that we're looking at in Luke's gospel, in Luke's Christmas story. And it's the shortest, it's the shortest song. It's a song that's sung by angels. <clears throat> last, this last week, I accompanied the after-school club that meets down in St. Mary's Hall, and uh, we walked up to church. They wanted to see around it the lovely decorations, and, and they wanted me to tell them a bit about the Christmas story, which was a delight for me. I set them a challenge as they were walking up and as we looked around the church of finding as many angels as they could. Do you know how many angels they found in the graveyard and here in the church? Can you guess? Anybody give it a guess? 200. That's a big number. What did you say? 99, just one less than yours. <laughs> Who said something back there? 15. There were 31 by our count. There might be actually be even more. Do you know what an angel looks like? What is an angel? What does it look like? Well, in these windows, there's an angel right there. You'll see, you see, these are all our windows in the, in the church. They all have angels in them. I didn't notice that before, before I was walking around with the kids. <clears throat> but in our tradition, angels always look like this. They always look like people with wings and maybe have a halo, right? But you know, in the Bible, when it describes angels, they don't look like that at all. When it describes angels, there are different types of angels. There are seraphim. Do you know what a seraphim looks like? Well, it comes from a Hebrew word that means snake. <laughs> and so the, the seraphim in the Bible look like snakes or they look like flames of fire. That's a bit scary, isn't it? <laughs> and then... Over in Isaiah and Ezekiel, they describe what are called cherubim. Do you know what a cherubim looks like? 
Well, I think there's a tradition in our culture that says a cherubim is a, a cuddly little baby angel. But in the Bible, a cherubim is a strange creature. It has uh, elements of human beings and animals. And it's got different heads. Maybe it's got the head of a lion and the head of a human being. And it's got two sets of wings, not just one set of wings. That's when the Bible describes an angel. That's what it looks like. It doesn't look like this. But most times that we come across an angel in the Bible, it doesn't describe the angel at all. In the passage that Joy so kindly read for us, does it describe the angel? No, it just says the angel appeared. The angel appeared. It doesn't describe the angel. And that's only right because the Greek word for angel is messenger. An angel is a messenger. And the thing about a a messenger is the message and not what the messenger looks like. The message is important. And if it's a messenger, if it's an angel of God, it brings a message from God. Do you remember what the message was that the angels sang about? In, In our passage, the song is sung by a load of angels. It says they're an an army of angels and they sing a song we don't know what they look like but they sing this important song that's a message from god and what did it say there it is glory to god in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests Glory to God in the highest. They're saying something's happened. Something's happened that means that we have to give God glory all the way up to the highest heaven. And what has happened in the story? There's an angel that comes before the angel choir. And the angel says that a baby is going to be born And he's going to be Messiah, Christ, the King, the Savior. Who's that baby? The answer is always Jesus. That's right. A magnificent thing is happening. And so the angels, all the angel armies come together to sing praises to God. And we're going to sing praises to God now with our next hymn, which is... It was on a starry night. Let's stand and sing together. Let's pray together as we turn to reflect on God's word. Lord God, we are so familiar with this story that it's so easy to skip over it and not to realize the import of these events that happened. And I pray that you would help us to hear this story again afresh, to look at the particular words that you inspired, that we too might be inspired to give you praise 
and to live our lives for you. Come, Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So it may be the shortest of all the songs that we find in Luke's gospel, but that doesn't mean that the song that the angels sing has anything less important to say than do the songs of Mary and Zechariah and Simeon. And again, it's worth exploring the context of this song. The song is part of an angel annunciation or an announcement of the birth of Jesus. And so far in Luke's gospel, angels have shown up twice already to to bring announcements about Christ's birth. The angels have shown up for Mary and for Zechariah. And if we take Matthew's gospel into account, an angel has appeared to him in a dream sometime before the night described here in our passage. So angels everywhere announcing something of great import. In the passage before the angel choir sings, another single messenger appears. And it's not so sure who that messenger is. It could be an angel of the Lord, or it could be the angel of the Lord. It's not so clear from the text. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Christ, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in claws and lying in a manger. As we saw in Mary and Zechariah's song, Jesus was the long-awaited fulfillment of promises given by God. These Jewish shepherds would have understood from the terms that the angel uses, terms like Lord and Savior and Messiah, that Jesus was that long-awaited fulfillment of God's promise. Jane and I were talking the other, the other morning, and uh, this is the kind of conversation you have in the manse. What language did the angels sing that song in? What language did the angels speak to the shepherds in? The language in the New Testament is Greek, but the shepherds were Jews living in Palestine where they probably spoke Aramaic as their normal language. In the synagogue, they read in Hebrew. Which language did the angels speak in? Not sure, but what we have recorded in Luke's gospel is Greek. And that's significant. It's inspired by God to be written down in Greek. And as these words like Lord and Savior and Messiah, whether they're in Greek or Aramaic or Hebrew were words used by the prophets long ago. Translated, of course, here 
into Greek to describe the coming Messiah and what he would do and what he would be. But the words the angel spoke and the angel choir sang would not only have excited Jewish people about the coming Messiah, these words were also familiar, especially in the Greek of Luke's gospel. These words were familiar to everyone that lived under the domination of the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire, especially in that eastern region of the empire, where the Greek language was the lingua franca, was the language that everyone spoke in the market. And on hearing the terms Lord, Savior, Christ, attributed to a poor baby in Palestine, rulers and authorities in that Greek-speaking world would have been puzzled, and they would have been disquieted. For you see, these words that the angel speaks that Luke records in Greek about Jesus were words that had also been spoken of the mighty emperor Caesar Augustus. There are inscriptions like this all over the empire from just about the time of the birth of Jesus. But these inscriptions don't celebrate the birth of Jesus. They celebrate the birth of Augustus Caesar. And on these inscriptions, Caesar too is called Lord. He is called Savior. He is called Christ, the Anointed One. He is called Son of God. (laughs) Caesar is called the Bringer of Peace. In a letter written about this time, one of the senators in in Rome, sucking up to the emperor, wrote that Caesar Augustus' birth signaled the beginning of good news for the whole cosmos. Doesn't that sound just like the angel's words? I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. So what's going on here? What is God saying through the message that the angel brings and that Luke records here? I think God is intentionally inspiring Luke and these angels to use empirical language, royal language, to draw a contrast between this baby born in a stable and rulers like Caesar Augustus. So let's explore some of these words that the angel uses to try to get our head around what was going on that night in this event, this event that we are told was planned before the beginning of time. The word curios, our first word. Can we have that up on the screen? The word Lord or curios in Greek. 
used of Jesus here in our passage is the Greek translation of the Hebrew word that is used over and over in place of the name of God in the Old Testament. It's the name of God. Now that fact would have eluded the Greeks and the Romans reading Luke's gospel, but it would not have evaded the Jewish readers or the Jewish shepherds here in that field that night. In the angel's message to the shepherds, the child wasn't just another king like Caesar Augustus. For the Jewish listeners, Jesus wasn't the son of God like Caesar Augustus. He wasn't son of God because the Roman Senate deemed his father to be a god like Caesar Augustus. He wasn't just another god amongst the vast pantheon of other Roman gods like Jupiter and Mars, Neptune and Mercury. No, for the Jewish listener, Jesus was the son of the true God of heaven. He was curios. Lord, the Jews understood he was God incarnate from the message of these angels, that he was God made flesh. And that brings us on to another word used both of Caesar at his birth and of Jesus. And that's the word Savior. To say that Jesus, Caesar was savior would have left a bitter taste in the mouths of most everyone except for a very small population of Roman citizens. But savior is exactly what Caesar was called on those inscriptions. Caesar, however, was not in the business of saving the majority of the population of his empire. The vast majority of that empire were considered to be not citizens, but slaves, subjects working for Caesar, subject to his every whim. Jesus, however, was a different kind of savior. Jesus was Savior for all. Jesus comes to be Savior for all human beings. And Paul will later write that all those who trust in Jesus from whatever tribe or language or ethnic background are not subjects of heaven, but they are citizens of heaven. The Roman Empire, it took a lot of money and effort to become a citizen. But citizenship in the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Jesus, is a free gift to anyone in the whole world. All of the words ascribed to Jesus here that the angel tells us, tell us something about God's character. And here, no less, with this word, God in Christ is a savior. 
But this word also serves another purpose besides telling us about the character of God. It tells us about our condition. Tells us about the condition of the whole human race for whom Jesus has come to be the Savior. The Bible is quite clear that we're all in the same whether we are a man or a woman, whether we are rich or poor, black or white, whether we've been in prison or we've lived our whole life on the right side of the law. The Bible tells us that because of sin, that is, is like the very environment in, in which we were born and in which we live and we breathe, we are all in need of a Savior like Jesus. And Jesus comes on that night in Bethlehem to be that Savior that we all need. And Jesus is coming down like he did, being born as one of us and then dying our death is God's way of saving us. Another word ascribed both to Caesar and to Jesus is the word Christ. In Greek, Mashiach, in Hebrew, Mashiach. The word means the anointed one. In ancient times, anointing was a way of ordaining, ordaining a priest or a king. Caesar became the anointed one. Caesar became the anointed one through political intrigue. But Jesus was anointed by God. Jesus was chosen from before time began to be a king. Caesar had to fight to keep hold of his position and power. Caesar's position had to be propped up with propaganda by the people with whom he surrounded himself. Caesar's position was propped up with statues in every town of the empire. His position was propped up by these statues that made him look more handsome and taller than he really was. Statues where he was always wearing a crown of victory and purple robes. Jesus' position as the Christ, however, didn't need propping up. Jesus' position as king of kings was innate. Jesus was still the Christ no matter the company he kept. Jesus was still the Christ no matter what he wore. Indeed, Jesus was more of a Christ, more of a king than Caesar ever was, even when he wore a crown of thorns and hung naked on a cross. Jesus will be the Christ whether you or I accept him as such or not. And Jesus' power, unlike Caesar's, is displayed not through grabbing hold of it. But Jesus' power is displayed by being willing to let it go and lay it down. 
Jesus later in the Gospels will say that he has come not to be served, but to serve. Unlike Caesar, Jesus' life was not about climbing up the ladder or that greasy pole. In fact, the way of Jesus was not up at all. The way of Jesus is the way down. Jesus came down from heaven. He came down from heaven, not just in spatial terms, not just coming from up there to down here. Of course, God does not live up there. God doesn't live in the sky. God resides outside of time and space. And I believe the ancients understood that. And their language of up and down that we find in the Bible is metaphorical in the same way that the language of up and down is for us. One comes down to another's level. Isn't that what we say? That's the meaning of the incarnation. That's the meaning of Christmas. The coming down, the coming of Jesus was an act of great humility on the part of God. Coming of Jesus was a coming down to our level. Immortal, invisible, uncontainable God, God of the highest heaven, becomes a vulnerable, finite creature, born as one of the most powerless peoples on the face of the earth at the time of his birth. And so we come to the last ascription to both Caesar and Jesus. Can we have the next slide, please? A bringer of peace. Bringer of peace on earth. Augustus was known for bringing peace to the known world of his time. Indeed, there's a magnificent Altar recently unearthed that had been buried under the Tiber River. There we've got a picture of it. This altar was originally erected after Augustus's bloody campaigns to conquer Gaul and Spain. Bloody campaigns. That is how Caesar brought peace. He brought it with a sword. And sure enough, the Roman Empire experienced a golden age of very little war after those conquests of Augustus. And even though the Pax Romana lasted 200 years, when it finally ended, when the Caesars could no longer maintain their iron grip, it ended with a tremendous crash. Jesus, however, brings a different kind of peace to the world. Kind of peace that is forever. The peace of which the angels sing has its origins in that Hebrew word shalom. It is a peace that is not just 
an external cessation of conflict, not just an end to war, but it's a peace that you can have in your heart. It's a peace that you can have in your heart and that can also spill out into the world around you and cause wars to cease. The peace that Jesus brings is a peace that can sustain you through the most tumultuous of times of grief and pain and pandemics and raging wars. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. The brief angel song there at the end of our passage in verse 14, unlike the songs of Mary and Zechariah, does not refer to prophecies of the past but it refers to an event in the present. A song that the angels sing is a song of wonder and joy at something new and something surprising. That song that the angels sing is about something unique happening in eternity. The angels who day and night are in the presence of God have not seen such a thing as this before. They've seen a lot of things. They've seen more than you or I. They've never seen something like this. There in the little town of Bethlehem on that night, God reveals his heart in a deeper way than he has ever done before even for those who reside in heaven, this is a shocker. God has stripped himself bare. What God does on earth that night in Bethlehem shapes everything in heaven and on earth. And so it is no wonder that the angels sing glory to God all the way up to the highest heaven. And God in Christ will continue continue to do things that shock those angels. Among other, among many, many other wonders, God of various highest heaven will embrace a leper. God of highest heaven will show kindness to a tax collector. God of highest heaven will forgive sinners. He will forgive a woman caught in adultery. God in Christ, God of highest heaven, will wash the dirty feet of his thick disciples. He'll wash the feet of those who will go on to betray and deny him. And wonders of wonders, God in Christ will die alone on a wooden cross with nails in his hands and, and in his feet. And at that last shocking act, the, the angels will no longer sing. 
When they see the cross, their mouths will be shut in horror and in deepest wonder. But after three days, the angels will begin to sing again. According to the book of Revelation, from that moment of resurrection when Christ rises from the dead, the angels never stop singing as they join their voices with the elders who have gone before us into heaven Before the throne of the ascended Christ, they will sing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. You, Lamb of God, are worthy. You are our Lord and our God. You are worthy to receive glory and honor and power. And that song will never cease. And so as we wait to sing that song, let us with our lives join with the praise of the angels and with all who have ever trusted in this Christ, who have found him to be Lord God Almighty, the anointed Son of God, the one who brings us our peace. So let's sing together. Let's sing the carol while shepherds watched. Lord of heavenly armies, Lord who could have commanded legions of angels to come to your aid, to walk by your side, to protect you from every harm, but who chose instead for us and our salvation to come down be born among us to share our finitude to share our frailty and our fear you who gave us your love your lavish blessing and your eternal life we praise you with the angels And we look forward to the day when that praise will sound unceasing from us and from all that you have created. But in the meantime, be pleased for us to share in your renewing, redeeming work here on earth. And now we turn to the work of prayer to which we, as your church, have been called. At this present time, we pray for churches up and down the land, trying to decide on what plans to change, what new plans to make over this Christmas season, given this unpredictable situation in which we find ourselves. Lord God, we ask you to guide us all that your name will still be proclaimed at this time of year. That men and women, boys and girls will still hear that message that the angels sang, the message 
of the true meaning of Christmas and be drawn to put their trust in you. Lord, today we pray for people grieving. We pray especially for people who are reeling from this tornado in Kentucky and in other surrounding states, people who have lost livelihoods and property and family members. We pray also for grieving families in our own community. We remember before you the family of Max McGarry, family of Catherine Scott and James Inverarity. Lord, may these who grieve know the love at which Mary wondered, the hope which inspired Zechariah, and the peace that passes all understanding that the angels heralded. And finally, we pray for ourselves. Give us all courage and strength. Give us good humor and vision to make the best of the time in which we live. Will you help us to be never flagging in our zeal for your name and in our love and compassion for all those around us? For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We sing our final hymn, the hymn.